Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26, is our text today. Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. The title of our message today is Blood Guilt and Beautiful Irony. Blood Guilt and Beautiful Irony. We will be contrasting the amazing power of God against the blindness of our sin. When I was in college, before the Lord really got a a hold of my heart, my desire was to be an attorney, specifically an attorney in the criminal justice system. And to that end, I got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. And one of the first things they teach you when you get a criminal justice degree, is once you are found guilty of a crime, your punishment differs based on the intent, based on how much mental time and energy and forethought you put into committing the crime. So if you commit a crime in the heat of the moment, in uh, the heat of of just thinking it, you walk across something and you, you steal something, That's still punished and you're still held responsible, but if you plan out a bank heist, if you strategize about it, if you think about it, if you map it out, you and then you get caught, your punishment will be much more severe because, in in the proper terminology, you premeditated an act. You premeditated the crime. Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26, is the final step in the premeditated murder of Jesus. It's the final phase that the Jewish leaders and the people who despised Jesus had to get through to kill Jesus. They premeditated the death of Christ. For a little bit of context before we read They convinced Judas, they have convinced Judas to betray Christ. He betrays Christ with a kiss. They haul him off in the middle of the night and they try him in a religious court where he is found guilty of being the son of God. His apostles have abandoned him, everyone but John. John was the only one that stayed faithful. Peter has already denied Christ three times. Judas seems to be the first one to realize what he has done is wrong. And he gives the money back to the very people that paid him and goes off and commits suicide. And it's with this money that the Jewish leaders buy the potter's field because they know what they are doing and what they are trying to do is blood guilt, that they will, in fact, be guilty of this man's blood. But there's one thing, one aspect that they have to get through before they can kill Jesus, and that is they have to take him before the governor, before Pilate in a civil trial, and they have to convince Pilate of the necessity of Jesus's execution. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? 
And Jesus said to him, you yourself say it. And while he was being accused by the chief priest and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they are testifying against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at the time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was because of envy that they had delivered him over. Now while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they were crying out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Now, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but that rather a riot was starting, he took water. And he washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourself. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him over to be crucified. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us an account of all that Christ went through. Bless our time tonight. Help us to learn. Lord, help your Holy Spirit cause us to be illuminated with your truth. And in the name of Jesus, amen. I suspect that us today, living in 2023, Worshiping God in a basement in the middle of Los Angeles have a hard time really understanding the drama that is in this text, the suspense, the, the stakes, what is happening in this text. But to the original audience, to them, it would have been much different. I, I even suspect as I was preparing this, I wouldn't have been surprised if many, upon reading what we just read, would have not broken down in tears reading this account. And you might ask, why? Why would someone cry over this account, other, other than the obvious? But when you consider that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience— it all starts to come together. The book of Matthew, in many ways, should have been the Old Testament's fairy tale ending. It should have been the happily ever after story to the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament is the story of Abraham's family that is promised the Messiah, that the Messiah would come through the Jewish people and that they would be saved. Moses taught them to expect a prophet greater than himself. During the high point of David's and Solomon's reign, the people are told that a king would sit on David's throne and his kingdom would never end. They were looking for that king who would establish this throne. And even as the kings of Judah and Israel and the divided kingdom turned sour and polluted the worship of God, the prophets still gave a sweet message of the Messiah who was to come, the Messiah who would save and redeem Israel. The Old Testament ends and there's, there's silence. It's like the whole world is taking a breath, waiting for what's to come. And Matthew's gospel tells the story of what happens In chapter 1, the genealogy links Jesus to the Old Testament. He proves that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David. In chapter 2, the Magi show up. And these Magi, probably from Babylon, who were trained in the ways of Daniel and and told what to look for, they show up and they're kingmakers and they anoint him king In chapter 3, the Trinity shows up and a voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then in chapter 4, Jesus goes toe-to-toe with Satan and wins. No human in history has ever done that. No human has ever gone toe-to-toe, been tempted by Satan and overcome that temptation. And in chapter 5, with the Sermon on the Mount, everything is set up perfectly. The king is here, and he is proclaiming the kingdom. And then it goes downhill from there. The crowds who love the fact that he can heal them, who love the fact that he can feed them, and love the idea of him being a political messiah that will save them from Rome, they don't like all of the message that he's, that he's portraying, and they start to reject him. The religious leaders, who we will look at later, they, they don't like him at all because he's preaching a different gospel. He's preaching a different salvation than what been, they've been telling people. And as hope starts to wane, Jesus' message shifts to a message of, of judgment and a, and a future sort of abstract thinking of the kingdom. And Even his apostles and his disciples start to be confused and wonder, and Judas betrays him. And it's in our text where the storybook ending falls completely apart. The storybook ending ends. Tonight, we're going to look at this text. Because not only is it, I would argue, perhaps the most malicious and evil event, the, the, the ultimate culmination of evil in man, the premeditated work of sinful men, 
But there's also in this text a, a beautiful irony. And by looking at the darkness of the text, God does something great with the truth behind this text. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to go step by step through the events and the motives that lead to the blood guilt of the people for the death of Christ. And then we're going to look and see the irony. And I would challenge you to see if you can, as we go through this text, find that beautiful irony as we go. But as I said, to understand that irony, we need to look at the blood guilt. And within this, these 26, or the verse 11 through verse 26, I see really three factors. Three factors, or should I say three human factors, that come together in the death of our Lord. Three human factors that come together in the death of the, our Lord. And while we are looking at these factors to, to get to that irony, they're also sinful conditions of every man, of everyone. And you can apply these to your life and, and purpose to avoid these factors. And the first factor that led to the blood guilt of the people of Israel is the envy of the Jewish leaders. The envy of the Jewish leaders. Because of the envy of the Jewish leaders, they are guilty of the blood of Christ. And who are these leaders? Well, the Jewish leaders in the context here would have been the, the city council of Jerusalem, basically. It might have been called a Sanhedrin, a local council of leaders. They would have been primarily made up of the, the high priest. They would have been made up of scribes, people who understood the law and, and sought to, to understand God's word. They would have been also made up of business leaders in the Jewish community, in the Israeli community. And they despise Jesus. And our text identifies, pinpoints in one word, why they hated Jesus. It's ironically, it's in verse 18 in the middle of our story. It's Pilate who diagnoses why they hated Jesus. For he knew, Pilate, that because of envy, they had delivered him over. They envied Jesus. The, the word here for envied is very unique. It's very descriptive, I should say. It's a word that means an internal sadness based on someone else's good fortune. An internal sadness based on someone else's good fortune. Have you ever experienced envy? Have you ever, for no good reason, been sad when someone else has success? When someone else has what you want, when someone else's life seems to be going perfectly and they keep getting blessed and, and things are going well and you're just down in the dumps, nothing ever seems to be going right. That's envy. That's what's happening. That internal sadness that you feel is envy. And why would the Jewish leaders have this envy? Well, think about it. They worked their whole lives to raise to the top of the ladder, to become leaders in the community, 
in Jerusalem to become the best of the best. They spent years. They probably came from great families. There was every opportunity for success, and they had to work hard at it. And they worked hard, and now they were at the top of the system. And this carpenter from Galilee up north starts teaching, and he starts healing, and he starts forgiving sins. And he starts not only doing all these things, but he also he also starts talking about their gospel and saying they've got it all wrong, that their rules they're keeping aren't actually the rules that relate to the kingdom of God and that they've interpreted scripture wrong. And all this is happening and they're just sitting there and watching the crowds follow him. And they're, they have that internal sadness and the envy of him. Oddly enough, Jesus prophesies about this and and why they had this envy in chapter 21, verses 33 through 35. I'm just going to tell the story. If you want to fact check me, though, that's where you would find it. Chapter 21, verses 33 through 45. It's the story of the the landowner and, and the vineyard owner who rented his land out to hired tenants. And they worked the land, and the the agreement was that he would come and collect the proceeds or the, the, the payments, the finances from this land. And as, he, and as he sends his servant at harvest time to collect the money and, and the produce, they kill the servant, deciding we'll kill the servant and we'll just keep everything for ourselves. So he sends another servant and they kill that servant too. And these servants represent the prophets that God was sending before the Messiah that the people were killing. So finally, the the landowner says, I'll send my son and he will deal with this. And when they see the son, they think to themselves, if we kill him, we get the kingdom. If we kill the son, we will get the, the proceeds. And so they kill the son, and that is a parable and a prophecy about what we're reading here today. If you capture the king, you get the kingdom. If you knock out the champion, you get the belt. If you kill the Messiah, you get the keys to the kingdom of God. Interesting enough, we can see that their sin is familiar, and in fact, I think there is uh, a, a link to Satan in his activity. You'll remember, if, you, if you've read any of your Old Testament, that in Isaiah 14, 14, when Satan's fall is discussed, it says that Satan said in his heart, I will become God. I will ascend to heaven and be like the Most High. And in the same way, these people, these Jewish leaders, are making a play for the kingdom of God. If Jesus is dead, then he's wrong, and we're right. If Jesus is dead, we can keep being in charge of the kingdom. There's an interesting way of thinking about this. There's a parallel between Saul and David. Consider this. Saul had the keys to the kingdom. He was the the, the king appointed by God, but he sinned and God took the kingdom away from him and appointed David. And David was just a member of Saul's court. He was a nobody. And, and what happens that causes Saul to turn against David? They sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And with that, an internal sadness and envy bubbled up 
within Saul. Just like Saul had that envy, so these people, these Jewish leaders watching the Messiah come were envious of the Messiah. And that is the first factor that led them to kill Christ. It's a side point, but you ought to be careful anytime you feel envy bubbling up within your life. Write down, you can consider, study on your own time, how to avoid envy is Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. In the the culminating passage, it says you are to do justice, to have affection and a desire for loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The walking humbly with God being the key there. Because of envy, the Jewish leaders are guilty of the blood of Christ. That's the first thing we see. But the second factor in the death of Christ, the second factor that contributes to Christ being found guilty here, despite his innocence, is the cowardice of Pilate. The cowardice of Pilate. Now, you might say, oh, that's a bit unfair to say that Pilate was a coward. There were other factors involved, and absolutely. But when you consider who Pilate is and what Pilate's supposed to do, this cowardice comes out. Pilate represents Rome. He has the power of Rome behind him. He has the authority of Caesar. He has every right to keep peace in the region, to do the will of Caesar. And not only does he have the authority of Caesar, but he has the military might of Caesar. He has the military of Rome at his disposal. So he has the authority and he has the power. He also, and this might be a bit abstract, but he also has the wisdom of Roman law. There are very, uh, there's, Roman law is is a very interesting system, the the Pax Romana, but but part of that Roman law is a a code of justice and, and not declaring innocent people guilty without them being proven guilty. Our our own system is partially based on Roman principles. So from a completely human standpoint, Pilate has every right to do justice here, to make sure that the innocent are not punished. Pilate also has the civil, or I'm pardoning me, Pilate also has authority from God, civil authority from God. And you have to cheat to find this. It's in John 19, verse 11. It's John's account of of the crucifixion. John says, Jesus reminds Pilate that all authority has been given to him from above. And so in a sense, and every ruler throughout history has a, a civil authority being given to them by God. That's a, a side point. But Pilate is expected by God to do justice in, a, in the civil realm, to do what is right. So there is a lot of things. There's every reason for Pilate to be just here. But his condemnation, his cowardice is made plain when you start looking through the text. And you see this cowardice come out. Oddly enough, um, in verse 11, Pilate asks him, probably sarcastically, we have no no indication that Pilate actually believed he was the king of the Jews or the Christ. But Pilate says, Pilate asks him, "Are, are you the king of the Jews? And as Pilate's asking this sarcastically, it is an interesting point because that phrase hasn't shown up for a long time in Matthew's gospel. The last people to utter that phrase were the Magi in chapter 2. 
the Magi were the last ones to, to say the phrase king of the Jews. And so from the beginning to the end of Jesus's life, the world, the broader world testified of his kingship while the Jewish people, the Israelites, the people of the Old Testament were oblivious to it. Pilate, though, getting back to Pilate, he recognizes Jesus' innocence. Verse 14 says, And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, that's Jesus, and the governor marveled greatly. There's a lot of discussion what it means here that the governor marveled greatly. Obviously, it's in line with the fact that Jesus isn't trying to defend himself. He's not putting forth arguments to defend himself. But the word marveled is rather ambiguous and it has a sort of supernatural element. And there's an idea here that Pilate recognizes that there's something else at play, that there's some divine thing going on when it, when it talks about him marveling greatly. In verses 15 through 18, Pilate makes an effort to release him, even though Pilate has all the authority to just release him and to tell the crowds and the Jewish leaders to go home. He comes up with a plan that he thinks will make everybody happy. It says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at the time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Here, Pilate doesn't just say, do what you wish with Christ, but he has a plan. He thinks, okay, we have this notorious criminal, this person that would probably honestly do more harm released to the Jewish people, or we have Christ. The word Christ here, we sort of lost that context of the word Today, we, we almost think of it as Jesus' last name, but it, it's not Jesus' last name. It's a title, the idea of Messiah, the one they were expected. So do you want a criminal, a nobody criminal who might harm you and your people? Or do you want the Christ, the one who's been doing miracles, the one who's been feeding you and teaching you? So he thinks that would be a no-brainer. He knows he's innocent. He's trying to get him off. Verse 19, his wife warns him. Verse 19, now while he was sitting on the judgment seat, stop there. Notice that Pilate is now not just judging this case, but he's sitting on the judgment seat. He not only has all authority to do what's right, he's sitting on the symbol of that authority. He's sitting where he would make judgments. And as he's seated on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Pilate's on the judgment seat and his own wife is telling him, don't find this man guilty. Have nothing to do with him. Get rid of him. So you've got, you know, he's innocent. You have your wife telling you he's innocent and yet he still wavers. And what's more is she says he's innocent because she suffered greatly in a dream because of him. And now there's a supernatural element to to, to Pilate. There's a supernatural element telling Pilate to release Christ. He's innocent of all 
charges. Another interesting point is the last time a, a dream like this occurred was also near Christ's birth. In the early chapters, Joseph is given dreams telling him how to protect the Christ child. But unlike Joseph, who heeded the warnings and was bold in obeying God's command, Pilate disregards the supernatural authority. This lack of boldness on Pilate's part is actually quite striking because of what we know about Pilate in history. There are other accounts of Pilate's reign in Judea. And what those accounts tell us is that he was actually quite bold when dealing with the Jewish people. He would constantly provoke them. There would constantly be a riot, and he would constantly put that riot down. He would bring all sorts of pagan gods into Jerusalem. He would bring armor and all sorts of things into Jerusalem. One time, when he wanted to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem, he took money from the temple treasury to build that water system. And when he did that, the people were furious, but Pilate had a plan to deal with them. He took Roman soldiers, dressed them in street clothes, and as the people were screaming and the mob was at its worst, much similar, very similar to here, he gave the command and the Roman soldiers executed members of the crowd. Pilate knew how to deal with the Jewish crowd. He knew how to put the crowd down. But he doesn't do that here. He succumbs to the pressure. And as it's getting worse and getting worse, and the people are chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate clearly knowing, what shall I do with Jesus? Why would, why would we crucify him? And realizing he's getting nowhere, he, he gives up. He fails to do what he should do. And in verse 24, when he saw he was accomplishing nothing, but that a riot was starting, he takes water and washes his hands in front of the crowd. This is a Jewish custom. Pilate's communicating with them based on their customs. This isn't necessarily a Roman custom of washing the hands, but in Deuteronomy 21.6, if there's a murder that goes unsolved, the city is guilty before God of the crime. And so the leaders, if they just cannot figure out who committed this crime, were to wash their hands of the matter. That's uh, Deuteronomy 21.6. So Pilate, and sort of mocking them, but also in, in a way to communicate with them, this is on you, washes his hands of Jesus. He says, I am not responsible for doing what's right. It's in that moment that the cowardice of Pilate gives way or becomes known and another fat actor in the death of Christ. It's interesting that James 14.7 warns that when you know to do right and don't do it, it is sin. Because of cowardice, Pilate is also guilty of the blood of Christ. I find it, well... It's, it's appropriate that in the early church, as different statements of faith, doctrinal statements, what are called creeds, are coming about, and the Apostles' Creed is the earliest, but also probably the most famous is the Nicene Creed. In the Nicene Creed, the, the church is, is trying to figure out what is orthodox doctrine, what is true about Jesus and the Trinity specifically. 
They include the phrase when talking about Jesus' life, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Because no amount of water could wash away Pilate's part in this. Because Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. He is not innocent of the blood of Christ. So the first factor we saw was the envy of the Jewish leaders. The second was the cowardice of Pilate to do, not do right, that he didn't do right, he did wrong. He let them do evil. And there's a third factor, a third factor that came together in to allow for Christ to be found guilty when he was innocent. The third factor, and for lack of a better word, is democracy. And I mean that in the most broad sense. The idea of democracy is when the supreme power is vested in the people and exercised by them. In a sense, the Jewish leaders are the the mind behind getting Jesus executed. Pilate stands in their way and he caves. But the force that moves through this process is the crowd's. And the crowd always held Jesus' life in an earthly perspective, always held Jesus' life in their hands. In Matthew 26, 5, just one chapter earlier, the Jewish leaders can't actually get to Jesus because of the crowd. Because if they seized him, the crowd would go crazy and they wouldn't be able to execute their plan. Now, after grabbing Jesus in the cover of darkness, after accusing him of all sorts of things, they have the crowd on their side. And in fact, crowd is probably too kind a word. This is a mob. This is a riot. This is is a group of people that are chanting things. They're, They're chanting in Matthew's account, crucify him, crucify him. In other accounts, they're chanting things at Pilate, like we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And you're no friend of Caesar. And it's just chaos and complete logic and control is out the window. In verse 17 of our text, they're given an option. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Once again, think about the term Christ. It's the Messiah. It's the Jewish hope. They can either choose the criminal or they can choose the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. It's the difference between dirt and a diamond, the difference between gold and gravel, the difference between a criminal and the king of kings. And they choose the criminal, the Messiah. They choose to execute the Messiah. For generations, fathers would have told their sons when things got difficult, we're waiting for the Messiah. He will make all things right. Mothers would have told their daughters that the Messiah is coming. And this generation that receives the Messiah, he's there for them. They don't see it. And they put him to death. And they're, they're whipped up into such a frenzy, verse 23 Um, Pilate asks them a question. He says, what evil did he do? What did he do? Why are we killing this guy? And they say, but they were crying out all the more. They were just crying out, saying, let him be crucified. They, They became a mob. They threw away logic. They just started chanting and 
and calling out groupthink had completely consumed this crowd. And it builds and it builds. And this is the point, verse 25, where Matthew is the storybook ending. Any hope of, of a storybook ending comes crashing down. Notice it, it's not just the Jewish leaders who are saying these things now. It's the whole crowd, all right? Everyone who is there is screaming this. And all the people answered, all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. The blood of the man who would be their king, the incarnate son of God, their hope from the beginning. And they put a curse on themselves. They say, we will hold ourselves guilty of this man's blood, the blood of God, the son incarnate. They're fine with that. They don't realize what they're saying. Obviously, they don't realize the significance, but that's what they've said. They've incurred the greatest damnation on themselves that a human being could possibly put. Imagine that. Imagine being held guilty of the blood of Christ. And yet it's in these same words, his blood be on us and on our children where we find the beautiful irony You see, because that's exactly what it takes for someone to be washed of their sin, the blood of Christ. Despite the darkness and the the envy that's at play, the cowardice of Pilate, the, the craziness of the crowds, Satan's wickedness whipping things up behind the scenes, there was there was a higher cause happening. That was, the, that was a, a cause from God. That was the providence of God. Understand that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. After our text, after Jesus is found guilty, the rest of the narrative is just the execution of Christ and then dying on the cross. But while we get the human side of that in the Gospels, turn with me to Revelation 5. And let's peel back the veil and see what's happening in heaven when Christ dies. Uh, Context for Revelation 5 is John's in heaven and there's a title deed to the universe and and no one is worthy to, to take back control of the universe until John sees a lamb slain before the foundation, or just a lamb slain. And let's pick up the story in verse six. Then I saw... In the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, he's in heaven, and of the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out to all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne, and he had taken the scroll, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now here it comes. And they sang a new song, saying, what are they singing? 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. When we talk about the blood of Christ, we're not just talking about physical blood. When we talk about the cross of Christ, we're not talking just about the splinters and the wood. We're talking about a reality, a spiritual reality of atonement for sins. Understand the mission of Christ, why Christ came when he did. It wasn't to establish a political kingdom and to to make all things right, but he came with a very specific mission. God is holy. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. At the same time, Romans 13, 12 says, man is darkness. Every envy, every every lust of your flesh, everything, it comes from the the darkness that is spewing out of you. It comes from an, an inner darkness. But because of our darkness, we can't come into the presence of a God who is light. We are separated from God. And what's worse His wrath, his justice abides on us. Every moment of our day, the wrath of God sits on on us as sinners. But Christ came to earth as light. John 1, 4, in him was life and that life was the light of man. Christ came as the light and on that cross, as he is dying, he took on the church's darkness The darkness of the church of Christians was put on Christ and Christ's righteousness was put on the church. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. So do you see the beautiful irony? The curse that they laid on themselves could only be resolved by the very blood they were guilty of. Whereas Pilate, no amount of water could wash away Pilate's guilt, but Christ's death could wash any soul white as snow. The Jewish leaders and the people who, who at that time condemned Christ, they should have thought of Isaiah 53.5 and all who would call out, but he was pierced for, through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He would, the chastening of our peace fell upon him and by his wounds, we are healed. Christ's blood heals. It's an atonement, a substitutionary atonement. What that means is we are guilty before God. We are guilty of our sins and Christ's blood pays the price. He purchases us and he brings us out of darkness and to the light. He redeems us. If you're a Christian here today, you have been purchased by God. That is what has happened to you. Christ with his blood offered up to God in heaven a perfect once for all sacrifice and saved the church's soul. By way of conclusion, there's one last piece to this beautiful irony. Turn with me to Acts 2. Acts 2, 
We'll end with this. It's not just some hypothetical blood of Christ that saves people. The very people who are guilty of the blood of Christ in that generation, something interesting happens to them. And you know the gospel story. Jesus dies on that cross. He's buried. And three days later, he rises again, conquering death and the grave. He ascends to heaven. Peter is reconciled back to God. All the apostles are reconciled to God. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down and the church is built. And on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, we're going to start in verse 22. Peter stands up and he preaches what has just happened. In verse 22, it reads, Men of Israel... Listen to the words, these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, they know this, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross, to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Flip over to um, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the people are hearing this and they're realizing that they, they killed the Messiah and they ask Peter, now when they heard this, verse 37, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The church is founded by the very crowd that crucified Christ. The church is built on the very people who on that faithful night said his blood be on us and our children. Jesus forgave them and he brought them into the kingdom and he offered them repentance and faith. And that is what the church does. That, or that is what Jesus does for his kingdom, for the church throughout every generation. He takes people out of darkness, out of their envies, out of their sins, and he brings them in to the light. He takes them from the world and he brings them into his kingdom. He did that then for them. He's done that through the ages. And he does the same thing for us today. He saves souls. There's really two crowds, two ways to live. There's the crowd at the beginning that living for self, wanting to exalt themselves, determines to do anything to reject and to kill Christ. And then there's the other crowd, the people that have humbled themselves before Christ. They worship Christ. They recognize that life might not be easy. There might be suffering to follow Christ. But they obey, and, and one day they will be rewarded 
with dwelling forever with Christ. Those are the two options, two crowds. Which crowd are you in? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for saving sinners. We thank you for paying that great price. We thank you for turning such a great evil into such a beautiful good. Lord, guide our discussion now. And in your name, be glorified. Amen.